the yeah. story of Israel is a story of God, including voices from both men and women, even when the world would like to silence the women. We do Jesus. Yeah. Jesus is inviting women to the table. Um, that's a big deal. It's powerful. Um, and he's intentionally doing so. He intentionally creates situations where he gives women an opportunity to give testimonies. Um, and then there's the obvious one. Who's the first one to proclaim the resurrection of Christ? Uh, Mary, Mary Magdalene. She's the one who's going to go back to the disciples to tell them. Um, that these, these are powerful things along the way where we see God saying, yes, the story the men are telling is important, but so is the story that the women are telling is important, and the story is not complete without both. I guess that's what I think. The story is not complete without both. Mm. Let's get coffee. We'd love to get tonight. Um, so we're just going to jump right in today. Uh, we have been in the middle of our beloved series uh, going through First John this summer. Um, and today we've got our friend Kyle with us. Um, he had so much good stuff to say on Sunday. Um, he went deep into the text of Genesis 1 through 4 um, as it mirrors First John 2, 15 to 17. Um, he examined the way the kingdom of God versus the way of the world um, and the way those systems play out in our lives. Um, he touched on concepts of equality, Sabbath, flourishing, what it means to be an image bearer of God, all that good stuff. And today, we are going to dive right into that. Um, so we'll get Kyle in. Maybe, maybe we'll do it. There we go. Perfect. Hey there. Yeah. All right. Can you hear me okay? Perfect. Sometimes my, our Wi-Fi, the Wi-Fi at my house is uh, a hit or miss sometimes. So if I am ever cutting out, just say, and I can try to move somewhere else. Okay. Sounds good. Awesome. Well, thanks for jumping on yeah. and joining Excited me today. To be here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it should be fun. So we're just going to get right into it. Um, so we are going to focus, um, for people who maybe weren't there on Sunday, um, there were several spots, um, Kyle, where you said, like, I'm cutting this out or I'm skimming past that or I had to edit this out. Um, and those are the spots that we're going to zero in on today. Um, so we're going to start off, just jumping right in, um, with Genesis 3.16 um, and a little discussion on that and what you were talking about with that verse. So I'll read it, um, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. Um, all right. So it says, then he said to the woman, 
I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in pain you will give birth and your desire will be to control your husband and he will rule over you. Um, so for context, for anybody listening, um, that is the, uh, that is God's curse to the woman in the fall, um, to Eve. Um, and so this verse is very interesting to me, um, in terms of the way it's played out, uh, in our current and past like church context specifically regarding women and men. And I've been thinking about this a lot, um, the last like year or so. So I was excited when you brought it up because I've never actually heard anybody like talk about the relationship with women and men in relation to this verse before. Um, and I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking about it a lot, like how it, it does a lot of things, but like first points to the dissatisfaction of women being ruled by men um, and how it also signifies that like the toxic patriarchy that we see is not the way of the Garden of Eden, but of the fall. And that like modern attempts of feminism tend to fall short because it's, I think, an inherent problem that only God, that can only be healed by God redeeming the story of the fall. Like nothing that we do is actually gonna make a difference unless we are like actively going back to the garden and the story of the garden. Um, so all of these things make me think of some questions. Um, first of all, why do you think that we're perpetuating the story of the fall, not the story of the garden? Um, what does that tell us about God? What does that tell us about ourselves? Uh, can you just talk about um, that a little bit? So I think it's interesting that you're, um, the, the New Living Translation actually has the word control in there because most translations don't, uh -huh. and so they're unclear. Um, so the New Living Translation, that is that is a good translation of that right there. Um, uh, uh, I liked what you said as far as that feminism doesn't answer the question, modern feminism. Um, I don't exactly know that I'm fully qualified to answer all of what you asked. Um, but I think, I think in the end, what it really comes down mm -hmm. to is we see in the garden, there is not a hierarchy. There's no hierarchy at all. And mm -hmm. we, uh, once we look at those two trees, we still want to go back to that tree, the tree that is not the one that God said to go to. And when we go to that tree, we determine we want to be gods, which means we determine that we're going to control other people, um, which plays out in ways like patriarchy mm -hmm. and things like that. And again, can also play out in toxic feminism as well. Both sides of the spectrum are bad. The right answer is not a hierarchy at all. It, it's, it's partnership. Mm -hmm. It's uh, people coming together, working together, seeing each other as equals. Um, the validity of both people at the table. Um, and I, what I see in the Bible mm -hmm. story is that you know, I pointed out as soon as we get to Genesis 4, we already see the toxic elements of that patriarchy playing out with polygamy and things of that sort starting to take place. Um, we continue to see that play out throughout Scripture. Uh, but we also see God constantly pushing back against it. Look at the book of Judges. Hmm. The judge 
that is most healthy, most successful is Deborah. Um, leading up to Deborah, mm -hmm. the judges really are not that amazing. Um, most of them are, they're okay, but you get to Deborah, and after Deborah, they, it, nobody else can even stand. And there are some people that will say, well, Deborah was only a judge because mm -hmm. there were no other men that qualified. Well, actually, that's, that's not the case, and the text makes that clear. Um, and the judges are overlapping. Mm -hmm. It's not just one after another, which people miss as well. Um, so there are qualified men, but God specifically calls Deborah to that role. Is it feminism? No, she's just the one that God called to that role. And um, hmm. we see uh, also during the book of Judges, as Israel's falling apart, um, if you read the second half of the book of Judges, it's just depressing and disgusting and so discouraging as Israel's falling apart and walking away from God. Well, God says, well, don't worry. There's still a story happening, and that story is Ruth. Ruth is happening at the same time. Mm. And that's yeah. a powerful yeah. story. Ruth is significant. And, and who is Ruth? The mother of the monarchy of Israel. Um, again, these aren't feminist mm -hmm. statements that doesn't ignore the fact that there were men involved or whatever. It's just saying God specifically includes women in the story, even though it's cultures where they would have been very happy to remove women from the story. Here's another one. Um, the book of Exodus. You open up the book of Exodus and you have um, a Pharaoh who's never named. But right off the bat, you have two midwives who are named. Um, you have um, mm -hmm. the mother of this child who's named. You have the sister of this child who's named. Um, and these are all the people who are the saviors of Israel, in a sense. In this moment, they're the heroes that are keeping Israel moving forward. Um, it's it's these these midwives and this this mother who takes this risk, this daughter who takes this risk, and then you have. Pharaoh's daughter who ignores the directions of her father and keeps this child alive. Um, the yeah. story of Israel is a story of God, including voices from both men and women, even when the world would like to silence the women. We do Jesus. Yeah. Jesus is inviting women to the table. Um, that's a big deal. It's powerful. Um, and he's intentionally doing so. He intentionally creates situations where he gives women an opportunity to give testimonies. Um, and then there's the obvious one. Who's the first one to proclaim the resurrection of Christ? That's Mary, Mary Magdalene. She's the one who's going to go back to the disciples to tell them um, that these, these are powerful powerful things along the way where we see God saying, yes, the story the men are telling is important, but so is the story that the women are telling is important. And the story is not complete without both. I guess that's what I say. The story is not complete without both. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. Did I answer I like that? Question? Yeah. No, it's good. And it's not that I think the thing that we get so caught up in, especially in like American politics, specifically, you know, in the discussion of 
like who gets to speak or doesn't get to speak, et cetera, whose story is more important. Is that like bringing stories on the same plane doesn't mean that like one is mm -hmm. always above the other one, you know, just because we want both stories to make the whole doesn't mean that like one is no. going to be more important. And in fact, it should. And, and I will actually say that's yeah. a, a frustration I see with um the way people teach the bible is that there's lots of stories in the bible about women that people just don't know because i'm going to guess because they're about mm -hmm. women if you if i mention the name holda most people don't know who holda is mm -hmm. i think i only very recently learned who she was like like last week, like very early. My mom sent me a, like this picture of her Bible reading and she was yeah. like, have you ever heard the story? And I was like, it's a ever powerful it? story. It's an important story, but yet why, why don't we teach it? Why is it not in the picture Bibles that kids have? Why is it not told? It's, it's a story. And I, I, I'm going to propose it's because it's a story about a woman and those stories were overlooked. Um, I'm going to propose it also probably made people uncomfortable because it was a woman teaching men. And that caused a little bit of cognitive dissonance for some people. Um, but I don't know what to tell you. God called her to do that right there. And so cognitive dissonance or not, it's in the text. That's what we've got to wrestle with. Um, if somebody's listening, the story of Hulda, um, the king wants the renovation of the temple and they've moved so far away from scripture that they've even lost some of their books of scripture and in the renovation of the temple as they're trying to restore everything they ended up, up finding scriptures in the temple um, likely the book of deuteronomy and they don't know what to do with it so the king says what do we do with it and they end up deciding the high priest the king and some of the other leaders um try to decide who they can ask how to determine what to do with this text. And the first person they pick to go to is this woman, Holda, And she uh, answers their questions and God prophesies through her to speak to them. And again, it's not because there wasn't anybody else. There were major prophets at the time that they could have gone to and they went to her first. There's a reason for that. Um, God specifically ordained her in that moment to to speak to them. So, yeah, I think I think the world um, wants control and hierarchy. I think that's our way. And I think for too long, the mm -hmm. church has bought into those systems because they're comfortable. It's really comfortable to go to power structures, um, especially starting with... Uh, about the 300s with Constantine um, stepping into his role in the church and his push for the church to be something where we have power structures and things of that sort. We, we see women really get sidelined around that point. And um, we still have lots of power structures today in post-Christendom. We're starting to see some of those structures breaking down and we're starting to see churches moving closer to a more slowly moving towards a more first century setting, which is people sitting down and around tables and loving each other, which is the way the early church operated as families. And so that'll be beautiful.
Oh, that's good. Good words. Um, all right. So I'm going to do these questions, Kyle, in a bit of a different order than what I sent you. So we're going to jump um, down. Still kind of uh, staying in that vein of like words that we see in the Bible and how sometimes those misinterpretations throw us off. So uh, jumping to what you said about um, <laughs> the word rib, um, like Adam, how the Eve was taking it from Adam's rib and how she wasn't like a part. She's not just like a little part of Adam. She's mm. actually like half of Adam because the the more translation is side. I've never heard that before. I was like, what? Um, anyways, I love that. And I love it's like it, it just sort of going back to what we were just talking about, like it's implications for the relationship between women and men. Um, but it also pushes up against that narrative of like the Bible is the ordained word of God. There's no problems in it. There's no mistakes. Um, like that line of that line of thinking. I remember growing up and that was always like the big thing in my Sunday school where it was like the Bible is God's word and everything in it is true and right, <clears throat> which I agree with. I'm not like we can't trust, but all of these things t thinking about words that are wrongly translated um how do they here's just some questions like how do they stay incorrectly translated for so long um it makes me be like why didn't anybody realize this sooner like what are we what have we been doing um and then it makes me be like are there more like are is there a lot more things like that that i just have been like thinking wrong about forever um, how can we trust the Bible if we know that, like, there's new mm -hmm. translations coming out all the time? Um, anyways, uh, there's some um, questions for you. So I would say the Bible is true and without error in its original mm -hmm. um, manuscripts uh, that were written. Um, so, mm -hmm. um, and, and we don't have mm -hmm. any of those. Um, we don't have any of the original documents. Right. So um, that that is a challenge. Uh, let's see. This would be so much easier if we were in a classroom. Um, you can take my biblical <laughs> interpretation class in the fall if you. <laughs> All right. Sure. I'd, yeah. I'll just sit in. Um, I'll audit the class. It'll be great. Let me see. I have a form, a, a document. I don't know if it will show up on the screen or not. Let me see if it will. One second. Okay. I, I will try. Right. Let's see. Okay. So over here, I can okay, just well, backwards well, like I'm looking at um, here, but it's fine. So we have, we I'll, have like I'll Homer, use um, we have um, Plato, Aristotle. These are all like classic mm -hmm. works that everybody puts complete faith in, um, right? So, mm -hmm. so if we look at like Homer's Iliad, that was um, that was composed in the ninth century BC. Um, the earliest copy that we have, so 9th century BC, the, the earliest copy that we currently have is from 400 BC, 500 years later. And we only have about 643 early manuscripts. Okay, 643. Okay. How about um, Plato? Plato's uh, Tetralogies was written in about 400 BC, but the earliest copy we have of it is from 900 AD. That's a big, and we only have about seven early manuscripts, oh. but we put complete faith in it, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
Mm. Aristotle was written in the mid second century BC, but our earliest copy of it is from 1180. And there's about 49 early copies of it. Um, the New Testament, um, we, we know that it was written between the 50s and up to, it was completed before 100 AD. Um, we have um, fragments of it from the early second century. We have uh, the first, like a whole complete book from 200 AD. We have complete New Testaments from 325 AD. Those are still pretty close in time for ancient documents. Uh, and we have um, 5,000 early copies of uh, the, the complete manuscripts, uh, 20,000 early uh, pieces of early manuscripts. Nobody questions Homer, nobody questions Aristotle, but yet we keep questioning the Bible. Now, should we? Yes, because it's important. But when we balance it out, the Bible stands up really well. That was super fast. If we were in class, I would do much more in-depth stuff. That was really superficial. But, um, right. I mean, it gives it um, that's, that's one, one part. Yeah. Two, um, we have to look at it as well. Um, did you study any other languages in school? No. I, well, yes. Any other languages? What's that? You took yeah, French. I took French. Okay. So, so when you were taking French, I'm sure you saw that words don't necessarily transfer over smoothly into English. Okay. So, our biblical text is written in early forms of Hebrew, early forms of Greek, and Aramaic. And so there's a lot of work that goes into transferring those languages over into modern English. And it doesn't transfer over smoothly. Um, if you want really, really good, uh, a really strong ability to read your biblical text, um, go go learn Koine Greek and Biblical Hebrew and Aramaic, and it'll be a lot smoother for you. Uh, and there's the tools that you can use to get better at right. it um, if you don't want to learn them. Um, mm -hmm. So there is that. You do have access to it. It's not like it's completely cut off. Um, and as we go, mm -hmm. actually, just in the last couple of decades, um, we're finding more work, like I'm doing it. I'm going to keep saying work because it's easier, but you know what I mean. We're finding more and more Mm -hmm. um, manuscripts and gaining um, a deeper understanding at a rapid pace right now, um, faster than ever before. Mm. That's something to keep in mind is when you hear mm. things now where it's like, how come I didn't hear that before? Sometimes it's because we have a newer, better understanding. When I hear a pastor saying mm. that they're, they're citing a commentary that was written 50 years ago, and that's the only commentary they have, it's not not bad to use a commentary from 50 years ago, but the truth is we've learned so much in the last 10 or 15 years that some of that information is getting really outdated fast. Um, so that's important to mm -hmm. keep in mind is the discipline is growing and that's a beautiful thing. The journey's not stopped. Um, so that's a piece in there as well. A third piece, every yeah. Bible translation has a philosophy behind it. Um, when people are looking for Bible translations, Bible translations aren't just there so that you can just pick and choose whatever you want. 
Bible translations exist for different purposes. And most people just don't realize what their purposes huh? are. Um, and so, so when you're going to go look for a Bible translation, the question you need to ask is, what am I looking for a Bible for? Um, what am I going to use it for? Because hmm. that's going to make a difference in what translation you're going to get. Um, and some translations do have um, philosophies that have agendas. That is a truth. Um, both uh, leaning to different, different sides. And that's a truth. And it, it's important that you know that. Funny thing is, is many of the people that are on each translation committee, they're on the same ones, but the company that's doing it says, this is our agenda, and so comply. Um, so it, it's just there. I'll, I'll explain that one in a minute. Um, but um, it, it, it's minor, but it is there. Um, lastly, the influence of tradition is still strong. And I'll explain that one. Okay, so story. The NIV comes along because um, actually the funny thing, it was a reformed uh, guy who was tired of handing people the King James version. And he, he wants a better translation in English. So he, over time, this develops into the NIV and um, a bunch of, to, to have a translation, you, you have a large team of translators that work on it. It's not just one or two people. Um, yeah, I have, professor from college is on the okay. current so, NIV yeah. so As they go along, the NIV is a really good translation. And um, they recognize, uh, as we get towards the 90s, that it needs to be a little bit more gender inclusive because that's the way we speak. We, we don't speak in a patriarchal tone anymore. That's, that's not twisting the language of the text, if you're trying to translate it into modern English, that's how you do it. Um, and what happens is they create a translation that becomes the, it's called uh, today's, uh, the TNIV, today's new international version. They go really excited with the gender neutral uh, language or gender, gender inclusive language. And there's a massive, massive backlash because the Christian world is mm -hmm. not ready for gender inclusive language. And this was in the 1990s. Um, so the mm -hmm. NIV stresses out, the, 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 the people behind the NIV stress out. Um, along the way, you get the ESV from that because the super hyper conservatives are saying, well, if they're gonna go that path, we have to go hyper complementarian. So that's kind of, I'm, I'm oversimplifying. But when I said agendas, that's where you get your ESV is it's kind of trying to push back on a lot of the gender inclusive language. So when you're holding your ESV, that's kind of what it is. It's a good translation, but they go over conservative on not having um, gender inclusive whenever they can get away with it. Uh, along the way, you get the NIV 2011 where they try to find a middle ground so but it's not perfect yet but they're trying but they've realized that the church is not ready for gender inclusive language so it's improved but it's not there yet if you want gender inclusive language probably the new living translation is probably your best bet um which i'm guessing is probably why you're using it um, and uh so so you can see that there is tradition in there as well 
when it comes to the rib, so I went through a long explanation. When it comes to the rib, there's a lot of tradition connected to the rib. And I think people are scared to take it out. But I bet if you look in your Bible, there's a letter there. Um, Let's. I still have it from when I read it before. Uh, should be. What verse is it? Is it? Uh, two eighteen. No, no, just kidding. It's not. It's a. Uh... Uh, it. No. Yes. Mine says ribs. Okay, but and that it should has take you down asterisk. to your bottom, which tells you. Um, there you go. Or took a part so, of the man's side. They're honest side. with you, just not directly in the text. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing I do want to point out is mm -hmm. that um, your Bibles will tell you the truth. They will clarify or they will point out where there's debates. Um, typically, so when you see hmm. those things, those letters, go and look and see what it's saying so that you can see what, what's going on there. Um, I'll show you another controversial thing. Yeah. Um, Go to Mark. Ready? Go to the end of Mark. Okay. Yeah, I had never, back on the NLT thing, I had never heard of New Living Translation till I came to Redemption Hill. And I just like, I love that it's colloquial in that it makes it like everything you read and it feels like it's new. Like it doesn't sound like really like Bible-y as much as like yeah. people just talking to you which i appreciate it's like a nice like refresh of you know anyways all right end of mark uh, okay oh so, this bit yes um somewhere mm -hmm. in there mm -hmm. it should tell you that um the end of mark is not in the original manuscripts uh-huh. So yeah. even though it's there, they're being hesitant about taking scripture out of mm -hmm. the Bible. They're also telling you it likely actually was never mm -hmm. in the Bible. Um, so they're honest mm -hmm. with you, but also not wanting to cause people to have a nervous breakdown when they open up their Bibles and don't see something there. Um, so right. it's not that somebody's yeah. lied to you about the rib as much as they're trying to not cause people to stumble, but still providing you with the information if you understand how to find it. I do think it's going to shift not too long from now to saying side instead of rib. Uh, so my understanding of it is that it does mean rib in later Hebrew. So a translator looking at it saw it as rib ran with it as rib and we shaped theology off of it but the truth is in early hebrew it doesn't mean rib and that's the only place in scripture where it's rib it always means side throughout the old testament because that's not what it meant um the truth is it doesn't really change the theology that much um it, it just clarifies it more to understand that it means side Well, and I've heard, too, that, like, depending on, like what you're saying with the agenda, like, depending on the background and the agenda of the people doing the translation, they'll choose different words. I've heard that before, too, which I um, think is interesting. For that word or just in general? 
so that's okay just in general so that that actually brings me to the, another part in the translation stuff okay so i said that it has to do with um different translations have different purposes so you have a spectrum of translation philosophies um on one side you have what is called the um actually i don't know if it'll show up very well okay mm, okay so you have on one side uh the really formal translations which are going to be really word for word translations um so basically when you're translating from the greek or the hebrew they're going to try to get it as literally close to the greek or hebrew words that they can while still making it readable is, is readable a word anyway um yeah okay yes it is okay so um they want to make it as, as as easy for you to read it well uh, make they want to make it so that you can read it but as close to the source language as possible so if i was to take um the new american standard version that's going to be um a formal one and so if you read that it's going to sound really wooden it's going to it's not going to sound like how we talk mm -hmm. um, but if you're doing academic yeah. work the new american standard is a great text to use or the new revised standard um those are really good if you're a strong reader they're going to get you really close to the source text um but they're still mm -hmm. in english on the far side you're going to have more functional which are going to be thought for thought so they're not paraphrases paraphrases are a very different thing altogether but they're going to be more thought for thought so contextually they're still telling you the same thing but they're more concerned with making it as readable as possible so the message is the most uh, functional that you can yeah. get the niv is uh in the middle it's dynamic it's a mixture of both so so like i said an nasb or an um new revised standard those are good for doing academic work if i'm writing a paper i'm going to use one of those translations um when i'm teaching i teach from the niv because it's a strong text but it's still very easy for people to understand um plus it's probably the most common translation people in america are using so it's easy to use that one um the message is yeah. not a good study bible um in fact eugene P peterson says don't use it as a study bible but it's good for devotional reading um or sometimes if i'm really deep in a text i'll turn to the message and read it in the message and then go back because it'll just give me a, like a new like refreshing take on it um it's also really good for example if you're working with somebody who is struggling to learn english like maybe they're new to english you can have a message and it's good mm -hmm. or somebody that's not a christian yeah that's a really easy text to pick up and start reading um i have i know somebody mm -hmm. who is um they don't read very well they have maybe about a third grade reading level i can hand them the message and that's great um, so the message has its purposes. Mm -hmm. So if you're wanting to get a Bible because you want to bring a Bible to church, you probably don't want to get the message. You probably don't want to get the NASB either. Um, the NIV or the NLT is probably a good one. Mm -hmm. um, so does that make sense? They all have their purposes. So yeah. the yeah. reason they're going to have different words is going to have to do with their translation philosophy. But they should all be 
the same context. Let me, let me do this for you. Let me, I actually came prepared. Give me a second here. So NASB, You're doing I'm great. looking at Genesis uh, 25, uh, 24. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth, red all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Okay, so, okay, that's English. We can read it. We can understand it. It's very wooden. Um, yeah. If I go to uh, New Living Translation, let's see, I said that was 25 verse 24. Um, yes. When the time came to give birth, Rebecca discovered she in did indeed have twins. The first one was very red at birth and covered with thick hair, uh, like a fur coat. They named him Esau. Um, the other twin was born with his hand. Oh, so yeah. So it's, it's the same thing. The context is the same. It's mm -hmm. just, um, yeah. a different approach to how they're putting the words together. So. The NASB was word for word mm -hmm. literal. The New Living was focused on making it yeah. readable. So that's all. That does that make sense? Wow. wow. Yeah. You really are getting um, biblical interpretation today. I'm all about it. Let me tell you what. I love it. It's like taking me back to my days in college, where I would just be like, "Tell me all things," and I would like, you know, I'm out of that quite a bit. So I miss it. Uh, no, that's great. Thank you. Um, okay. all right, let's do one more question. Um, before we go, uh, I want okay. to talk a little bit more about Genesis four. Um, and just walking through, you talked about like how it, uh, shows the implications of the fall as like devaluing other humans. Um, you talked about like polygamy and murder and you said a justice better than God's, which is interesting. Because uh, I've never heard anybody talk about the fall in that way. Like, it's never been like the fall was people devalue each other now, um, which is so, so interesting. Um, and you also said that he had edited some stuff out. Uh, so I'd love to hear what some of that was. Um, and then also just talking about like why that uh, everything that happens in Genesis 4, why is that significant? And like, why is that discussion of justice important to the way that we see justice today? Hmm. So I think Genesis four is important because it's, um, so we have Genesis three, what we traditionally call the fall and great. Okay. So it says there's going to be this mess. Um, and now what? Well, Genesis four tells us the now what, um, we see with the very next generation, we have Cain and Abel, uh, who you have Cain literally killing his brother out of a stupid jealousy. Um, and, and as this, this moves forward, we see really quickly within a couple of generations, how far they've, they've fallen apart as a people. Um, Genesis 4 does primarily follow Cain's line which is important. Um, uh, we have to go to, it's just barely at the end of Genesis 4 that it even starts to mention Seth. So it's just following Cain's line and it's just reflecting on the, the implications of the fall. And the implications are the, the brokenness of human relations. 
Um, the idea of mm. some things I didn't talk about. God tells Cain to wander. He says, you need to move away from this space. What's interesting is there's grace in there. God says, I will take care of you. No one's going to harm you. But you do need to go away from this, this space. You are going to be a wanderer. And it's interesting because what does he do? He builds a city instead. He was told to wander, but he builds a city. And the interesting thing is when he mm. builds the city, not only is he in defiance of God, but he names it for his family. He names it after his son. So even though building cities isn't bad, he does it for his own glory, not the glory of God. Mm. Building cities, good. In fact, the very end of the Bible is God building a city. Um, that's, there's nothing wrong with cities. It's the idea that he takes something and he does it in opposition of God. Um, and, and we see these things. We see um, marriage is tainted. It's tainted because we see a direct example of it's no longer about a beautiful partnership. It's about control. It's about exploitation. Um, and like, polygamy exists in the ancient world. Um, it can be a way to provide for the fact that sometimes there's problems in childbirth as far as maybe a couple can't have a child. So this is a way to continue to make children. And it's not that it's ideal, but it is something that can happen culturally. But the text doesn't point to that as happening. It's pointing to people dominating mm. and the degrading of people. And um, so it, it in, in a way, it's looking like it's, reversing all of these beautiful things that God had provided. Um, all these, these beautiful promises. Mm -hmm. um, something people overlook is it says in, in, in verses um, 20 through 22, it talks about these um, achievements that these uh, descendants of Cain's uh, developed. And a lot of people talk about them as great cultural achievements. But they're not there for cultural achievements. They're not positive things. They're negative things. They would be positive things, mm. but Cain's line is still doing things for their own glory, not for the glory of God. And it's one of those things that we have to look at when we're doing beautiful, positive things. Are they beautiful or are they negative? Um, you love art. Is your art for the glory yeah, of God or is your art for the glory of you? Um, that's an important mm -hmm. thing. And, um, that, 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 those are important parts of the story. I think really where I want to go here is the, just the idea that, um, Genesis one and two is a worldview story. People can turn it into lots of other things and they miss the whole point of what it's telling us. It's a worldview story. It's telling us that God created. He created intentionally. He created in love. He created in order. He gave us an opportunity to join with him, to partner with him so that we can flourish. And he said, every single person has a place at the table. Every single person matters. And when we pick and choose and decide which people don't have a place at the table, we're placing ourselves in God's position. 
we can even go forward to the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about not judging. Why are we not supposed to judge? Because we're not worthy to judge. He's the judge. Um, we don't, we're not supposed to be the gatekeepers. Um, and what we do need to be doing is we need to be loving the people around us. We need to be looking for ways to pick people up. Um, in, in the garden, he gives humans the authority to rule. But that rule is not a domination. How does God rule? Everything we see of God ruling is him reaching down and picking us up. And that's how we're supposed to rule. We're mm. supposed to look around and watch for the places where we can pick others up. And that, that's our call. And that's a beautiful thing. And so anytime that we start pushing people down, we're acting in opposition to God. Um, and I, I think in Genesis 4, that's what I see, is a, a people who are more focused on pushing others down instead of picking people up. You asked what I cut out. The part I cut out was in Genesis 6, which um, is leading to the flood. Um, I wanted to point out the, the whole reason that God says that this whole flood is going to happen in so something to note is that in um, both in Hebrew and Greek, they they don't really use they don't use a word very. If um, it's very hot outside, we say that they don't say that. They would say it's it's hot hot outside. Um, repetition is is a big part of how they communicate. So we're reading in our Bible and it's like wow it's really redundant. It's that way on purpose. Um, so when something is repeated, you're supposed to really pay attention. It's being stressed. Well, in um, Genesis six. It's in verse uh, 11. The earth, the earth was corrupt in mm -hmm. God's sight, and it was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. When people talk mm -hmm. about the corruption in the world, I don't normally hear them talk about the violence part, but it literally tells you twice within a couple of verses, the main issue is the violence. That's what that God was the violence. Mm -hmm. So when we look around our world and we start asking ourselves, what's going on? Like, how often do I see Christians pushing for violence? How often do I um, look in, in Christian history and see Christians advocating for violence and yet the whole issue for the flood yeah. is violence. Um, but why is violence a problem? Because violence mm -hmm. is the destruction of other image bears instead of the lifting up of image bears. Um, I think our, what I would say is that um, a major part of our call, when, when I think modern Christians look at their faith, they tend to look at their faith as an internal thing. Um, I need to work on my heart. And that's true. But as we look at the New Testament and we, we, we watch what Jesus says, what does James say, what does Paul say, they all talk about how we're supposed to live out our faith. And it's not a salvation by works, but mm -hmm. it's the idea that if we actually are 
someone who's pledged allegiance to God, it will be reflected in how we live our lives. And the way that we're supposed to live our lives, we're supposed to be actively involved in things connected to justice. And I know that's a bad word in the modern American culture right now, but I'm sorry, justice is all throughout scripture. You won't get through very many books of the Bible without coming across God dealing with justice issues. And that's not a liberal agenda, it's a biblical agenda of caring about people, valuing people, mm -hmm. making sure people have what they need. Um, James talks about making sure people have the clothes that they need. Don't tell people to go and be blessed, but then not give them a coat that they need. Things like that. Like, um, these are real, real calls for us. And I think um, I saw something on Instagram the other day where um, basically uh, I'm going to do a really poor job of, of paraphrasing it, but it was um, saying something along the lines of, um, will the poor people around you, you, your church, give you a letter of recommendation? And I, I thought that was really challenging. Um, I see a lot of people saying that charity shouldn't be a government issue. It should be a private issue. Okay, fine. But are we doing it? Um, that's our call. Um, I don't know. I kind of feel like I rambled a bit. I don't know if I got anywhere. No, you did. I, I think that's great. The point, the point of these is mostly just to like, <laughs> listen to people ramble because it's, it's all good ramblings. Um, but no, you exactly answered the question. So thank you. It was awesome. Well, thanks, Kyle. We'll probably just end right there for today. Um, but, but thanks again for jumping on uh, and for bringing these back. We haven't done one in a long time. So was loved it. Um, and we'll have to do more um, like really diving into like biblical history and that kind of thing um, like you do. Because it's a big thing that we miss Sounds all the time. This week in church we're talking important. about the Antichrist. So we'll see how that Listen, I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm excited. Uh, it's really fun. Um, and then everybody is listening uh, before next Tuesday, July 25th. Uh, we are having a uh, Redemption Hill like pool party situation. Uh, I've been told to push it hard. So here I am. Everyone come. Uh, invite your friends. It's $20 per family or $5 per person. Um, we rented out Ivy Wild, the pool. Um, so it'll just be our friends. It won't be like, it's not open to the public during that time. So it'll be a fun time to just come in and swim without having like hundreds of other children pushing you in the pool. So come to that. Uh, if you haven't signed up for the Wonder School Fun Run yet, that's on next Saturday. Um, and that is $100 per family, $35 for an individual, raising money for the new Wonder School building. Um, and this is your last week to sign up for that. So if you are meaning to do it and haven't, this is your reminder. All right, that's all from me. Um, and we will see you all you. soon again.